Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And what do you know? We're wrapping up another year. Seriously, it feels like just a matter of weeks ago that we were putting together our summertime Feeling the Heat show. And yet here we are getting ready to toast to a bright and shiny new year. But before we jump into 2014, we wanted to toast to something else. Some of the great characters we met and places we visited in 2013. So this week we bring you our annual Hall of Fame show, a roundup of some of our favorite stories from the past 12 months. Stories like Emily Berman's piece, sharing one woman's very personal story of the first days of motherhood. He is not even eight pounds and he has taken over my entire house. And Jacob Benston's look at the doctors and nurses saving lives at Baltimore's Shock Trauma Center. It's organized chaos. Every person has a very critical role. As everybody fulfills that role, the machine functions very well. And so it's actually not very stressful. We'll also hear Jonathan Wilson's story about the district's budding young beat poets. And we'll tag along as Lauren Ober takes on one of the world's fiercest players of dodgeball. Some people do the no-look throw. Oh, right. Which is like... But before we get to all that, if you watched any movies or TV back in 1990, you might remember this movie trailer. Clint Eastwood is Sergeant Nick Polovsky, what you might call a seasoned cop. Charlie Sheen is Detective David Ackerman, what you definitely call a rookie. Good work, kid. Now read them their rights. The Rookie is your classic rookie cop veteran cop flick. The veteran's all set in his old-school ways. The rookie's just getting his feet wet. And inevitably, at some point, the rookie decides he's ready to step up his game. It's time for me to stop being scared. For other people to start. Like, on TV, they make it look so cool. Um, you know, they jump out of the huge, like, black trucks, and they bust down doors. You know, police, everybody show me your hands. Kim Curry is a rookie officer with the Montgomery County Police Department. So I have to ask, in your experience so far, you know, you had those childhood dreams and visions of this, like, really exciting life. How does it compare so far? Yeah, I put it this way. I haven't jumped out of a black SUV and kicked down anybody's door. But at age 25, Curry has seen a fair share of action during her first 18 months as a patrol officer in Germantown, Maryland. I recently joined her on the overnight shift, riding shotgun in this totally tricked out SUV. Oh, my God. This is quite the setup. It is. It's pretty intense. <laughs> And with help from continual updates on a laptop computer. So this computer is like the best thing that's ever happened to me. And a flurry of messages over the police radio. Curry handled all sorts of incidents around Germantown. At 10 p.m. or so, we responded to a 911 call from a potentially mentally disturbed woman who claimed voices were threatening to kill her. County police. Then we pulled over a driver who'd blazed his way through a no-turn-on-red light. Good evening. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I stopped you because you ran that light back there. That's a no-turn-on-red light. You have your license and your registration on yes, you? Yes, ma'am, I do. And a little bit later, we provided backup to a senior officer who'd stopped a kid for drinking in an abandoned parking lot. By the time we arrived, the officer had cuffed the 19-year-old, who apparently had initially lied about his name and age. Who lied it out? It's up to the commissioner. I'm not sure... I didn't bother nobody or harm nobody. Why are you trying to bother me anyway? All right, well, you can't lie to the police. I didn't mean to lie to you. I'm just scared, son. 
Kimberly Curry says her initial inspiration for getting in on all this action was her uncle. Growing up, my uncle was a police officer in this department for years. And he just was always a, had a very demanding like presence. When he walked into a room, people paid him so much respect. And I just admired that. And that helped push me into it. Was it super intimidating? I mean, when you started? Oh, yes. I mean, you have all these people with brass on their shoulders and you're like, oh, is that my sergeant? Is that my lieutenant? I don't know who that is. In the academy, you had to get this. You had to address them by their rank, yet you could not look at them. I'm like, um, without sounding like an idiot, how am I supposed to know what your rank is if I can't see your shoulder? But we, we mastered the art of glancing out of the corner of our eye to catch their rank. Curry says she and her 30 mostly male classmates also had to master all kinds of law, constitutional, criminal. Day one, we get there and there are two stacks of books on your desk and you can't see over top of them. But Curry made it through and now ranks as PO1 or police officer one, which she tells me as we drive around Germantown is basically the lowest rung on the ladder. You described like your position as bottom of the barrel. I mean, you still get to do a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, we have full police powers, so I get to do, like, everything. A PO3, which is the highest um, patrol officer. I mean, except for, like, sergeant. Um, we get to do all of the same stuff, but bottom of the barrel meaning if I go on a call with a PO3, he calls the shots. And quite often, Curry says, she actually prefers being so deferent. And there are times when you get on, on scene of a call and you're like, I feel like a rookie. I don't know what to do with this. And then sometimes... I run calls with the um, officers who just got out of the academy. So I'm the senior car? Oh, that's weird. (laughs) I'm like, I have six months on you. Like, that's it. But sometimes, she says, those six months can make a big difference. It's fun because then I actually feel like I know what I'm doing and they don't. (laughs) And it's true. Curry says since getting out on the street, she's learned all sorts of things. The neighborhood, the people, not to mention all that cool police lingo. Um, Here's one I'd never heard before. 41? 41 means okay? Yeah, 41 means okay. That come from the old 10 codes. We don't use those anymore. But 41, it's easier than I'm okay. And then sometimes even you say I'm okay, you use our phonetic alphabet. I'm Ocean King. Curry says in the police force, you're considered a rookie for the first five years. And once her five years are up, she hopes to get promoted and ideally keep protecting and serving the community here in Germantown, a place she's truly grown to love, even if it's nothing like a movie or TV show. I mean, I have some that I like, but it's really hard because you're like, that's not real. It doesn't happen like that. You enjoy them when you're like, oh, I'm going to be a cop. I'm going to watch these shows. It's going to be awesome. But that's Hollywood, you know. The reality may be far less glamorous, far less dramatic. But PO1 Kimberly Curry says she can imagine being a cop for the long haul. For her, that would be positively 41, if not Ocean King. We'll switch now from the police beat to another profession that's inspired more than a few Hollywood scripts through the years. What is it? Explosion at a power substation. Multiple burn and blast victims three minutes out. How many? At least eight. That, of course, is the medical drama ER. And if you've ever watched ER or other shows like it, you know the doctors on them often seem to spend their days, and their nights for that matter, troubleshooting their way through crisis after crisis after crisis. 
And that's not too far from what happens in real life at the University of Maryland's Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore. The center sees more than 8,000 severely injured patients every year. And when it opened its doors more than 50 years ago, it was pretty much the first of its kind. Nowadays, it's thought to be among the best trauma centers in the nation. Jacob Fenston takes us behind the scenes. It's a beautiful Friday afternoon, and the sun is shining on the roof of the Shock Trauma Center in downtown Baltimore. Right now, I'm waiting for Trooper 1 to show up. Trauma technician Tony Cristiani. Trooper 1 is one of Maryland's seven medevac helicopters. It's a fall coming in, yeah, from over on the eastern shore. Guy was on a ladder, and he fell off a ladder about 10 feet or 6 feet. Cristiani rushes out as Trooper 1 touches down. Seconds later, the patient is in the trauma unit downstairs, where about a dozen staff members in pink scrubs swarm around him. He fell, then passed out. He fell, hit the ground, passed out. When things are going well, it's truly like an orchestrated ballet. Anesthesiologist John Blanco has worked here for 22 years. Everyone knows what everyone else is doing. They know where they are. They know what's just happened. They know what's coming next. There's no repetition. Nothing's missed. Every patient who rolls through the elevator doors here comes in with grave injuries. So the decisions that doctors and nurses make in an instant can easily mean life or death. But there's not really time to get hung up on that when another patient's already on the way. Usually Friday afternoon around 4 o'clock, 4.30, it's like somebody flipped a switch and things get busy, and they get real busy real fast. Especially when the weather's nice. People hit the road in cars and motorcycles, or they're out on the streets causing trouble. This particular afternoon, things do get very busy. The phone starts ringing, and it doesn't stop. Okay, no problem. Trooper 6, 13 and 17, industrial, category 8, priority 1, and it's, they're injured by a flailing hose. Okay, thank you, sir. All right, bye. Two patients on Trooper 1. Gunshot wound to the uh, left buttocks region uh, going to the left groin. I can't quite tell if it made it out of the groin or not. Excuse me, pardon me. You know, we've just admitted 15 people. It's kind of busy. It's not the busiest we've ever been, but it's kind of busy. Dr. Tom Scalia is the physician-in-chief in charge of the shock trauma center. Here, he says, doctors don't have the luxury of time to order a bunch of tests, then sit back and think. We have to make decisions, sometimes based not on the the greatest information, so you go with a lot of clinical feel, a lot of gut sense. Patients keep coming in, and Scalia makes the rounds with a gaggle of residents. Got the chart rack? Oh, chart rack. Grab the chart rack. Meanwhile, as the beds here fill up, staff swiftly shuffle patients to other floors to make room in the trauma unit. Right behind them, Elise Mitchell is among the women in blue scrubs cleaning up for the next patient. They're coming in, they're coming in, they're coming in. we got to be fast right along with them. Everyone here seems to thrive on this fast pace. Dr. Scalia compares it favorably to a roller coaster. Nurse Ellen Plummer has another analogy. Your adrenaline's going all the time, pretty much, and you're almost like a racehorse waiting to go out of the gate. She says it's something you get used to, 12-hour shifts with constant adrenaline. But for patients, whatever event brought them here was unexpected and often life-changing. These patients and the families, they don't wake up today knowing that they're going to get in a car crash and they're going to get injured, and, and they have no preparation for that. That's the bad part of the job, she says, having to break the news to a family or finding a child's note to Santa 
in the pocket of a woman who just died after a car crash. We can't save everybody, and that's, that's the worst part of this job, totally the worst part of this job. Even though they can't save everyone, the doctors and nurses at Shock Trauma do save most. Of the dozens of patients who arrive here in ambulances or helicopters each day, 96% survive their injuries. I'm Jacob Fenston. Time now for a break, but when we get back, one woman's candid take on becoming a mom. It's a wonderful feeling, but it is absolutely pure exhaustion. And all that glitters may not be gold, but that isn't stopping this guy. You can pan gold out of just about every creek that flows into the Potomac River between Washington and Frederick. It's just ahead right here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. As the year draws to a close, we're bringing you our annual Hall of Fame show, a look back at some of our favorite stories from the past year. This next piece aired back in May on our Motherhood show. But it wasn't so much about motherhood as it was about a mother load. Of course, there's a lot from California. As we know, California has produced a lot of gold. We're at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History in front of the gold exhibit in the Hall of Geology, Gems, and Minerals. Where else do we see this gold coming from? There's Colorado, Alaska. Australia, of course, produces some fabulous gold to this day. And as museum geologist Tim Rose will tell you, back in the day, a place much closer to home produced some pretty fabulous gold, too. See that white quartz that's the matrix for the Montgomery County specimen? Right, right. Yep, that's right. Montgomery County, Maryland, from whence Rose originally hails. Yeah, I grew up in the Gaithersburg area. And as a kid, as a rock hound, you know, we knew about the gold. So, yes, I've been having my eyes to the ground looking for it ever since. See, Montgomery County is on the Piedmont Plateau. That's this belt of metamorphic rocks extending from New York to South Carolina. And the Piedmont has all these veins of quartz running through it. And within some of them, there are little pockets of gold and fool's gold, too. But it was gold, gold that had people in Montgomery County all keyed up back in the 1800s when it was first reported in the area. And as word spread, Tim Rose says people started panning for gold. They found it in streams in upper Montgomery County. And then they started full-blown mining operations, you know, digging trenches and sinking shafts. And everywhere you go in our area here, you look in stream beds, you look in farm fields, you'll find white quartz like that. And someday I'll be looking down, because I'm still looking, (laughs) and I'm going to see the glint... (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to pick it up and I'll go, okay, I can stop looking now. (laughs) I actually know a guy that was walking along the trail and saw a piece of quartz and he stopped and picked it up and turned it over and there's a streak of gold flowing through it. So, I mean, you never know what you're going to turn up. Amateur geologist Jeff Nagy is another Montgomery County native who's spent a ton of time with his eyes peeled to the ground. When I was a kid, I'd come home and my mother would be dumping the rocks out of my pockets and 
complaining about all the rocks that I'd be picking up. Now, Nagy's a proud member of the Gem Lapidary and Mineral Society of Montgomery County. I'm also a member of the Baltimore Mineral Society. And today, we're continuing his lifelong gold hunt right near Great Falls as we wander the former site of the Maryland Mine. The gold mine used to be one of the state's largest, longest-lived, and most productive. Is it possible to even estimate or guesstimate the number of mines that once operated in this region? There were probably uh, 20 or 30. Just Montgomery County or also like up near Baltimore and stuff? Montgomery. Nowadays, the site has a lot of ruined buildings. Water tank, the old water tank. Overgrown dump piles. We're walking on part of the dumps right here. You can feel the rocks underneath your feet. (laughs) And scores. There's trenches here. And scores. There's a collapsed shaft. Of abandoned prospect trenches and shafts. Uh, This would have been a vertical shaft that was probably 200 feet deep. Look at the big tree growing out of it. So you know that thing is completely caved in. But from 1867 to 1940, Nagy says the Maryland mine was a fairly thriving operation. How big was this mine? It covered 2,200 acres. Part of it's down here, and the Park Service owns it. The rest of it's up in River Falls or over this way in those housing developments. And that's the thing about so many of Montgomery County's gold mines. They've long been built over with roads or houses. One spot Jeff Nagy and I visited, not too far from the Maryland mine, is now a tree-filled park with benches, tables, even a playground. Yeah, just think the little kids in the playground playing on top of an old mine area. Unless you knew it was here, you would have no idea that anything was taking place here. Maggie's currently updating the Maryland Geological Survey's book, Minerals of the Washington, D.C. Area. He's eager to spread the word about the region's rich history of gold and other minerals, too. Take Patapsco State Park, for instance. West of Baltimore. Between the 1830s and 1940s, Nagy says hundreds of mines in the area were pumping out a bunch of different minerals, like quartz, flint, soapstone. Feldspar, beryl, mica. Garnet, chromium, copper. A small amount of serpentine, limestone, iron. But back at the Smithsonian's Hall of Geology, Gems, and Minerals, Tim Rose's eyes are on a different prize, gold. But again, not just any gold. Gold's found all around the world. And it's also been found in Montgomery County, Maryland. It has. It has. But not by me. (laughs) Yet. Yet. To learn more about gold mining in Montgomery County, Maryland, and to see examples of specimens found in the area, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Don't let me hear you say lights, taking you nowhere. We'll turn now from mother loads of gold to the early days of motherhood. Twanda Washington never thought she'd have to think about balancing work and parenting. She was in her early 40s, focused on her career as a high-powered regional sales manager for AT&T. And then, all of a sudden, there she was with a positive pregnancy test. This past spring, just shy of nine months later, Emily Berman met Twanda, who recorded this radio diary as she experienced her first few weeks with her brand new son. If you would have told me that I would be having a baby, I would have looked at you like you were crazy. I had accepted the fact that I was 40 years old and would not be a mother. Today is April 16th. 
the day before I go into the hospital to give birth to Patrick Ramon Amos Jr. I'm here with my fiance, Patrick Amos Sr. We're having our first child together, but you are not a first time parent. So I have two sons from my first marriage. Uh, both are college students. I never thought that I would start over again, at least not in that way. I feel blessed to be his father. That's why I love you. My family flew in from Chicago, so we had a total of six people supporting us. This is Pat's mom and his aunt, Emma. My dad and my mom actually drove up from Chicago. We had made up in our minds early on, whatever it took, a second mortgage or whatever, if you had to sell off the family values, we was going to make this trip. So here's the baby's room. He has so much stuff. He's so blessed. The night before the actual delivery, my father called everyone in the room and he just said we are going to pray we all grabbed hands and he said a really really nice prayer that pj would be healthy i will have a great delivery i will have a speedy recovery he prayed that we would definitely have the support we need and help raising pj and he really just asked god to watch over his life Hey, this is Mikey. I'm Twanda's little brother. All right, so we're just sitting in the waiting room, just waiting right now. As the door keeps opening and closing, we keep watching and... No, that's not him. Oh my God, he is gorgeous. <laughs> so everybody meets us back in the labor and delivery suite. Hey, Mom, scooch over, let me see. Talking about how much he looks just like his father. I told you. Lips. I could not stop staring at him. It was like, you know, here you, you've never met this person and you have so much love for them immediately. You just, you just fall in love. Today, PJ is 13 days old. I have survived two weeks of being a mother. My house it's upside down. My kitchen has baby bottles everywhere. He is not even eight pounds, and he has taken over my entire house. He is actually holding his bottle. He's done that twice already. I'm like, wait a minute. What five-day-old baby holds their own bottle? So I'm like, okay, slow down, because there will not be another baby coming after you, so you don't have to really develop too quickly there. Good morning. I'm sitting here with PJ about 3.30 in the morning, and I just had my first diaper explosion minus the diaper. As I was changing him, next thing I know, a green volcano erupted, and it went about five feet across the room, and I dodged it like, oh, it's amazing. I heard about it, 
but I've never experienced it. And I just got my first poop. He softened my heart so much. You know, you want to give this little person the world and protect them. I'm starting to learn him. He's starting to learn me. It's been a great trip so far. That was Tawanda Washington of Upper Marlboro, Maryland, and her then-newborn son, PJ. Her story was produced by Emily Berman. now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Brandywine, Maryland, and the Capitol View neighborhood of Southeast D.C. Hi, I'm Joyce Dowling, and I'm 59 years old and live in Brandywine, Maryland. Brandywine is about 18 miles southeast of Capitol Hill, between the suburban neighborhoods and rural countryside between Clinton and Waldorf in Prince George's County. Brandywine was the railroad village, so it was the site of the first major store in the area of the county. Most of the Brandywine area contained farms, many of which were tobacco farms. The old tobacco barns are already starting to become rare historic sites. Now, there are people of all walks of life here. Government workers, teachers, administrators, construction, transportation, and we still have agriculture here in Brandywine. Well, I like that Brandywine is an old-fashioned type community, for the most part, where people actually know each other and work together to continue to make it a better place to live. My name is Saraya Gant, and I'm 42 years old, and I live in the neighborhood of Capitol View. My neighborhood is located in Southeast Washington in Ward 7, in between the streets of East Capitol Street and Central Avenue, and it is in walking distance from Capitol Heights Subway Station and 15 minutes away from downtown. The neighborhood is an older um, neighborhood. Before they built the subdivision, there was public housing here on the southeast side and also on, um, across East Capitol on the northeast side. My grandmother, she's been living here for over 50 years. People stay around here usually until they pass, and then their children usually takes over their houses. Capitol View neighborhood is unique because of the long-time uh, residents that you have here that has been living here that was also part of the working class back in the 60s and that are still here and with the new new people moving in the subdivision you have the mixture of the two so that's what makes it unique you have homeowners and people that have been here for decades I grew up around here my grandmother lives on the next street and it has changed over the last six years it is a family-oriented upper-middle-class neighborhood where everyone knows each other, and we are, it's like a suburbs in the city. 
We heard from Soraya Gant in Capital View and Joyce Dowling in Brandywine. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can tell us all about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Up next, a local filmmaker explores what's next for D.C.'s Chinatown neighborhood. It's great for developers. However, for Chinese immigrants who want to live here, it becomes more difficult. And we'll meet district teens looking to make their marks as poets. If you're going through some real stuff, some heavy stuff, it's good to surround yourself with positive people. Stay with us. That story and more is coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're dishing out some of our favorite stories from the past year on a show we're calling Hall of Fame. In May, we presented a show we called Global DC, and in one story, we met a woman. Hi! Oh my God. <laughs> nice to meet you! Nice to meet you! <laughs> With a decidedly global background. Yi Chen is a filmmaker hailing from Shanghai in eastern China. When I was in China, um, becoming a filmmaker was an impossible dream for me. I never thought one day I would be making films. Um, but when I came here, I got into American University film program. I was interested in making documentaries. And Chen has just released her very first documentary. It's called Chinatown, and it explores the neighborhood we're visiting today, right around 7th and H Streets in northwest D.C., I've always been interested in uh, Chinese-American history as an immigrant coming here myself from China. And when I travel, I always love visiting Chinatown. The first Chinatown I ever visited in the United States was the San Francisco Chinatown. I dropped off my bag at the hotel, and I didn't even unpack, and I headed to the Chinatown. Chen spent a year shooting her documentary, which follows Chinese residents of D.C.'s Chinatown as they try to keep their culture alive in the rapidly changing neighborhood, which, by the way, actually started somewhere else. Chinatown first developed on Pennsylvania Avenue northwest in the late 1800s. But in 1931, as the Federal Triangle Project neared completion, Chinatown moved to where it is now. And though D.C.'s Chinatown was never as expansive as San Francisco's or New York's, back in the day, it did have its share of Chinese groceries, restaurants, and residents. But during the 70s and the 80s, urban renewal and redevelopment plans. Since then, the real estate price just skyrocketed in Chinatown, and they couldn't afford renting anymore. So they moved out to um, Wheaton, Rockville, and suburbs in Virginia. So now, Chen says... D.C. Chinatown has the largest archway of all the Chinatowns in the United States. That'd be the Friendship Archway, designed by local architect Alfred Liu. But it's one of the smallest Chinatown in the United States. It's about three blocks and around 400 Chinese immigrants. And the majority of these immigrants live in a 10-story, 153-unit apartment complex on the corner of 6th and H. Hello, good morning. Good morning. Come in. Known as Wa Luck House. Good, please sit, sit down. Sit here. Okay. Yi Chen and I stopped by the federally subsidized building to visit one of the immigrants from her documentary. I'm Jia Ting Xu. English name is Tina. It's for English class for convenient 
teacher call me. Tina's in her 70s, and she and her husband have lived in Wallach House since 2000. Tina moved from Shanghai to Washington in 1992. And while she appreciates how much safer Chinatown is now, she says she misses the days when the neighborhood offered a bundle of Chinese restaurants and two Chinese grocery stores. The last one, Dahua Market, closed in 2005. Oh, she said that because there's not a large Chinese population, that there's not enough demand to have a Chinese grocery store here, and the residents travel to Fosterch, Virginia once a month on a bus to buy grocery, which is very inconvenient for them. Indeed, the Chinatown Development Corporation provides bus service to Great Wall Supermarket, where Wild Luck House residents can stock up on staples like bok choy, lotus root, bamboo shoots, and jellyfish. But with nearly 250 residents and only 52 bus seats, the wait list is pretty long. So what do you think is going to happen to Chinatown in the future? She was saying that she hopes the city will pay more attention to Chinatown, to its residents, and uh, she wants to see more Chinese businesses and restaurants in Chinatown. The mom and pop shops are the entities that makes it Chinatown, you know, because the uh, usually the mom and pop shops are the Chinese people, or the Asians who run it. And according to Raymond Wong, another Chinatown resident in Yi Chen's film, we won't be seeing more of those mom and pop shops in DC's Chinatown anytime soon. The way the Hong Kong native sees it, the neighborhood's just going to get more and more corporate. And the corporate uh, entities are usually outsiders. I mean, here you'll see, we have a Hooters, but the sign is in Chinese. And we have a Bed Bath & Beyond, but you see the sign in Chinese. Right, right. Uh, The sign's in Chinese, but the owner's not Chinese, employee's not Chinese, and they don't serve Chinese Hooters. (laughs) 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 I've never been to Hooters, I don't know. (laughs) Wang directs the martial arts program at the Chinatown Community Cultural Center on H Street. The center offers classes in traditional brush painting, crafts, music, and, thanks to Raymond Wong, Kung Fu and Tai Chi. When I arrived here in the U.S., there was a Chinatown here. But of course, you didn't see the uh, office buildings, the convention center. You didn't see any of the uh, tourists here. It's just uh, neighborhood people. How do you feel about those changes? Well, it's kind of like a, a tidal wave coming at you. you. You just have to try to survive against it. You need some resistance and you need something to hold on to. So that's basically what I tried to do here at the Chinatown Cultural Community Center. Yi Chen says that tide is getting harder and harder to resist. Chinatown's Chinese residents only make up 14% of the neighborhood's entire population. And that 14%, well, the majority are getting up there in years. I fear the authenticity of Chinatown, whether it will still exist in 10, 20 years beyond the Friendship Archway. And the signs, like Bed Bath & Beyond and Starbucks in Chinese. And the signs in Chinese characters, exactly. Because what makes a Chinatown authentic, she says, isn't an archway or signs in Chinese. It's the people who've called the neighborhood their home for years and hope to do so for many more to come. We have more information on Yi Chen's documentary film, Chinatown, including ways you can check it out on our website. We also have a link to a plan the district government drew up a few years back, suggesting ways to improve Chinatown's infrastructure and enhance the neighborhood's cultural character. You can find it all on metroconnection.org.
We'll transition now from film to poetry. Now, many people think of poetry as something that's really personal, you know, something to be written and read on your own. But as Jonathan Wilson told us back in March, that's not the case for members of the D.C. Youth Poetry Slam Team. Adolescence and all the changes and personal growth that come with it can be excruciating. Um, I'm Eric Powell. Um, I'm from PG County, Bowie, Maryland. Eric Powell is sitting in front of three poetry coaches interviewing to be a part of the D.C. Youth Poetry Slam Team. He's articulate, but nervous. Anything, any like any social justice issue that I'm really passionate about, like people have told me that I might come across as like the angry black man when I when I be talking about um, certain topics that I'm very passionate about. Just watching the passion, nervous energy, and heartbreak that so many teenagers wear on their sleeves can be cringe-inducing. But it's also what can make watching them try to harness all those things in a performance exhilarating. Eric performs a poem for the panel. Have you ever felt nostalgia for a home you've never been to? For lips you've never kissed? As if home would never be able to embrace you in the midst of your own self-doubt, have you ever felt so far away from self, so far away from her? <laughs> like the short fans Powell, a short 15-year-old, stands straight as a rod as he recites his poem. He doesn't gesture, and his eyes remain closed most of the time. His performance skills aren't yet as compelling as his writing. He's already been on the team for one year and is applying to return for another. He says being around other poets, also in the process of discovering what their words can do, is powerful. That encouragement in that in that family, that family pushing is there, you know, that family support. And so we take each other to, like, levels that we didn't even know we could like, take it to, you know? One of the panelists listening to Powell's poem is Jonathan B. Tucker. Tucker grew up in Crofton, Maryland, and has been writing and performing poetry for 10 years. He's now the youth programs coordinator for Split This Rock, the arts and social activism collective that runs the youth slam team. He's coached the team for the past two years and says it's about more than just writing and performance. If you can remember back to high school... I remember when I was in high school, it didn't always feel like a safe environment. There was always somebody ready to judge you for something that you chose to do. And so bringing a bunch of teenagers together to share their personal stories, their creative writing in a team atmosphere, and to create such a supportive network of young creative individuals ready to share this stuff, um, it's really amazing. It's something outside of the lived experience of a high school. Y'all feeling good? Yeah. Y'all ready for a poem? Say yeah. Yeah. You ain't playing around. Say oh yeah. Oh yeah. We're about to get some poetry. A crowd of aspiring teenage poets, family members, and friends watches a Sunday show held at the Atlas Performing Arts Center on H Street. Sitting in the row of upcoming performers facing the crowd is Thomas Hill. He's a sophomore at Magruder High School in Montgomery County and goes by the name Vocab on stage. I was always one of six other kids who sat in a bare classroom. Mommy can't listen to her job, and Daddy won't share his corner with nobody, not even his own son. He's too proud of his pavement. He polishes it with his smoky spits and the soles of $200 Jordans. Yeah, I couldn't get a new pair of shoes if my ankles depended on it. My father taught me. Hill is auditioning to be on next year's Slam Team, but he says it took some time for him to get used to the idea of sharing his poetry with a team. I wouldn't tell anybody that I wrote poetry because I didn't want to get teased, and then... Um, um, I came to a Split This Rock event, and Jonathan broke me out of my shell. Woo! Woo! You better 
For so many of us, Thomas Hill's first experience with poetry, solitary, personal, isolating, is the image that sticks. We think of Emily Dickinson locked in her bedroom. But at a performance like this one, it's easy to see why the team concept helps budding poets grow. Poet Sarah Browning is the director of Split This Rock. Poets always need community, no matter who they are or how they write. And some are very solitary. But others, like myself, I've always worked best, even if I'm not in a formal team, but in a community of ideas and of active members of our greater community. I'm going to do one more piece for y'all, and I'm going to use the microphone because it's fun. Eric Powell says writing honest poems can be painful, and being part of a team can help you fight through that pain. I mean, it's cool if you're making pieces for yourself just to make, like to vent like, like, like a private journal or a diary or something, but to have those people surround you, because if, you if you're going through some real, some real stuff, some heavy stuff, it's good to surround yourself with positive people, and that's what you have in DC Youth Slam Team. I'm Jonathan Wilson. The D.C. Youth Slam team just held preliminary tryouts for its 2014 roster. We have more about the team, as well as clips of some pretty amazing spoken word poetry from local high schoolers on our website, metroconnection.org. And we should note, this story came to us through the Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for people to share their experiences with us and for us to reach out for input on topics we're covering. You can learn more about the Public Insight Network at metroconnection.org PIN. wrap up this final show of 2013 with a game. It's a game you probably remember from when you were a kid. To play it, you run around hurling a big rubber ball at other players, all the while trying to avoid getting hit yourself. It's dodgeball, and while many of us would probably prefer to leave our dodgeball days firmly in the past, Paniz Asgari thinks a little bit differently. Not only does the Washingtonian moonlight as somewhat of a dodgeball professional, she's become one of the best dodgeball players in the country. She recently showed reporter Lauren Ober some of her signature moves. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that when you hear the word dodgeball, you think about the time you got drilled in the face of the red rubber ball in the playground. Or maybe you think of the classic Vince Vaughn Ben Stiller movie, Dodgeball, a true underdog story. Dodgeball is a sport of violence, exclusion, and degradation. Make sure you pick the bigger, stronger kids for your team. That way, you can all gang up on the weaker ones. But that's not what comes to mind for Paniz Ascari. When she thinks about dodgeball, she thinks strategy and training and world championships. For me, it's a super fun sport that I happen to excel at. The 29-year-old D.C. resident was recently selected to the 2013 U.S. Women's National Dodgeball Team. I mean, can we all acknowledge that there's like an inherent ridiculousness a little bit, like a silliness to it, right? Or, or no, am I like totally offending you by saying that? I'm not offended that you think, some people might think dodgeball is silly. It can be silly, but get on the court, come play with me, and we'll see if you end up thinking it's still silly. 
So I take her up on that. We head to the racquetball courts at the Georgetown Law Center gym where she runs a co-ed dodgeball league. She's going to demonstrate a few moves that landed her on the national team. But before we start playing, I try to assess her skills. How fast can you throw it? 100 miles an hour. As fast as I can get people out. Yikes. First, we begin with throwing. Ascari demonstrates a couple of techniques. So what I use is the sidearm technique. It's perplexing to the person that's being thrown at because they don't know what direction you're going in. Now, if you watch. (laughs) That was so loud. And listen, you have so much more to work with it, just the force that you can throw it with, because it's your whole body motion as opposed to just your arm. Then she lets me have a go. Now, you're you're going overhand. Oh. Try to go from the side. Okay, go from the side. All right. But not low up. It's got to be from high to low. It has to be from high to low. You're signing up for next season. You're going to be great. (laughs) We go through some of Ascari's flashier moves, including some sneaky behind-the-back action. Then she does the no-look. Some people do the no-look throw. Oh, right. Which is like... See that? I'm not touching that. That was not hard. What? That wasn't hard. After a few more basics, we play for real. I'm taking it easy. I don't want to go all out. Go on. Lauren, are you ready? I'm ready. Ooh! That got me. Ascari proves she is definitely no slouch on the dodgeball court. In her regular league play, she generally is the last person standing on her team. But she's sort of predestined to be good. Dodgeball is in her blood. Ascari is Persian. She was born in Tehran and immigrated to the U.S. with her family when she was two and a half. And apparently, Persians love dodgeball. Their version of the game is called Vasati. The Persian version of dodgeball is where you have one team that's in the middle, almost like monkey in the middle. But instead of throwing the ball over every time so that you can't get it, they try and hit you. And so that second team is split on either side of you, and they'll throw the ball back and forth. Sometimes they'll throw it over. And you just keep playing until they get everybody out. I've been groomed for this sport. I have. <laughs> Vasati is still really popular in the Persian expat community. Ascari remembers playing all the time when she was growing up in Northern Virginia. Picnics, barbecues. Every chance I ever got, I played dodgeball with friends, family. And I said, hey, I know what I'm doing. I'm coming into this with an unfair advantage. Ascari's parents fled Iran during the height of the Iran-Iraq war. In Iran, her father was an architect. Her mother was a nurse. When they left their lives in Tehran and landed in the U.S., they had to start over. Ascari's mother got a job handing out yellow pages for five cents a book. Her father found work driving a taxi. My parents were upper middle class, educated Iranians, and they left everything. They left it all and came to the U.S. I am forever grateful for their sacrifice, for for them to give up everything that they ever knew to make my life absolutely amazing. And a big part of that amazing life is dodgeball. Ascari takes the sport seriously and leaves it all on the court. Her immigrant parents taught her that. My takeaway has been to never be lazy, to never take anything for granted. And so there is no option to quit. I'm Lauren Ober. Want to see Paniz Ascari using her signature sidearm moves on the court? 
We have photos on our website, metroconnection.org. Metro Connection for this week and for this year. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, and Jonathan Wilson, along with reporter Lauren Ober. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Our editorial assistant is Lauren Landau. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and MetroConnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, MetroConnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on MetroConnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing online anytime. Just go to the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll ring in the new year with a show about resolutions. We've gone through the Metro Connection archives and pulled out stories of people resolving to make life bolder, better, and brighter like the local researchers who've studied how we can all resolve to live a happier life, and the woman who's determined to free herself and her kids from unnecessary technology. We'll also hear from the student who's set on succeeding, despite being shot on her way to school. Like, I want to be able to know that I can pay my bills and have a good house and maybe a fancy car. I'm Rebecca Shear, wishing you a joyous holiday season and a happy new year from all of us at Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. See you in 2014.